The chief priests and the Pharisees, when they heard these next three parables that we're going to spend the next weeks looking at, they perceived, they discerned, they knew that Jesus was speaking to them about them. In our verses today, 28 to 32, we see a parable of two sons. In 33 to 46, we see a parable of tenants, wicked tenants. And in 22 verses 1 to 14, we see the parable of a wedding feast. In every single one of these parables, Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders about the religious leaders. And these three parables present the Jewish religious leaders in the most unflattering light presenting them as rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn men from whom the kingdom will be taken and given to others who will give to the Lord the fruit that he expects in its appropriate season. And so you see, there's these next two parables in Matthew chapter 21. And these parables so enraged the religious leaders that upon hearing Jesus speak them, Matthew records in 22 verse 15 that the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle Jesus with his own words. And you see that as we, work, we, work, as we will work through chapter 22. You see them approach him with four questions trying to entangle him. They approach him with a question about taxes, with a question about resurrection, with a question about the law, with a question about the identity of Jesus Christ. And they did this all because their immediate response to both John the Baptist's call and the Lord Jesus Christ's call to repentance and belief in his name to revealing the true state of their hearts before God was not to fall on their knees in humility, was not to fall on their knees in repentance, but to remain in their hard, stiff-necked ways. They were unlike those Pharisees and Israelites who later on, hearing the preaching of the Apostle Peter at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, we hear the, about them, when they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That was their response to the preaching of the gospel then. And, about, and receiving the word on that day, they were baptized and they were added that day, they were added that day to the church, about 3,000 souls. We're going to talk about them a little bit later this morning. But the religious leaders and the Pharisees, instead of being cut to the heart and repenting, they remained hardened and bitter, and they continued to fix their eyes on their true treasure. Their true treasure being their own status and their own influence among and over the people and nation of Israel. They continued to trust in their own supposed righteousness before God, a righteousness that they foolishly maintained by believing that they could compare themselves and contrast their external goodness with that of others like tax collectors and prostitutes and come out on top. Because I'm not like them, God must love me. This is something Jesus would speak to in Luke chapter 18 in another parable one of my favorite parables, one of the most humbling of all of Christ's parables, when he spoke to, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 9, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And I want you to hear that text 
Because that text reveals to us that any of us who suppose that we are righteous but treat others with contempt so that we might elevate ourselves, we are deluded. We are like the religious leaders. We are like the Pharisees that Jesus is here rebuking. Hear the way of the Pharisee in that parable. Hear the religious leader speak to God. Hear what he appeals to and what he trusts in as he approaches the Lord in this same parable in Luke chapter 18. Jesus said, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. In other words, listen to what this Pharisee is saying. Lord, look how good I am in comparison to other people. Lord, look at all of the things that I do for you. I sacrifice meals for you. I sacrifice my finances for you. Boy, you must love me. Seeing as I'm so good. Underneath it all, you can sense, not explicitly, but implicitly, this idea, God, hopefully you realize how lucky you are to have me on your team. Such a high view of self when approaching the Lord indicates too low a view of His infinite holiness and too high a view of your supposed goodness. And this is the attitude of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who confront Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus in these parables warns them, you must repent of such self-righteous hypocrisy and become like the other person in the parable in Luke chapter 18. The dreaded tax collector who praying in the temple at the same time as the Pharisee, according to Luke 18, 13, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the ESV doesn't quite capture it. If you have the NASB, it'll tell you, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This man recognized, I am such a tremendous sinner. I'm so much of a sinner that I might very well be called the worst of all sinners. And unlike the proud, self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee, this tax collector understood, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I am unworthy of your love, your consideration, your mercy, your grace, and I throw myself upon your compassion, upon your steadfast love, and I plead with you, be merciful to a sinner such as I. And Jesus summed up the principle, the same principle we will see in the parables of Matthew 18.21 by saying this, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus said, which of the two of these men do you think went home justified? The humble tax collector. 
Now, contextually, the parables in Matthew chapter 21 are spoken to the crowds in the hearing of the religious leaders. In response to the religious leaders who approached Jesus on this day and interrupted him as he taught and proclaimed the gospel in the temple. These leaders, they were looking for some sort of justification, some sort of rationale to arrest Jesus so that they could have him destroyed. And so on this occasion, unapologetically and forcefully, they intruded themselves upon Jesus as he was teaching the crowds and tried to disrupt him by asking, and verse, chapter 21, verse 23, look at it, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The parables all spring out of this question. See, they despised Christ and the wonderful things that he did. And so the religious leaders approached him, essentially asking him, who or what gives you the right to overturn the tables in the temple and to drive the buyers and the sellers out of that temple? Who sent you? Who commissioned you? Who vouches for you? Jesus, show us your credentials. You sit here or you stand here and you preach in the temple, but who gave you the authority and the right to do that? And you can imagine all of these religious leaders all exchanging smug and knowing glances at each other as they wrongly assume that they've got Jesus cornered as they ask him this question. Because if they can get him to say, as he would after his, after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 18, I have all authority, all authority on heaven and in heaven and on earth has been given to me, then they could charge him with blasphemy. On the other hand, if they can get Jesus to say, well, no one vouches for me, I vouch for myself, then the religious leaders could then say to the eagerly listening crowds, then why are you listening to this guy? He's got no authority. He's got no credentials. This is a crazy man speaking the delusions of his own mind to you. Listen to us instead. Here's our list of credentials. We got them right here for you. But they are unprepared, however, for the return volley as Christ masterfully answers and reveals two things when he asks them about the ministry of John the Baptist. First, he divulged the religious establishment's utter lack of concern for the truth of God in that he, he showed to the crowds that these religious leaders care more about their reputations and they care more about what people think about them than they do answering the question Christ's, Christ asks honestly and truthfully. So he reveals that in his answer. And second, he points out the source, albeit indirectly, maybe even directly, of his ministry and his authority. He points out his credentials saying, in essence, John the Baptist, he was a prophet commissioned and sent by God to Israel. <clears throat> this same John the Baptist pointed out to the nation of Israel that I am the Messiah, that I am the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Meaning, my credentials and my authority arrives from or are derived from the God of Israel himself. The God of Israel is the one who vouches for me. The God of Israel is the one who confers the authority by which I do all of these things. But Jesus is not done speaking to them yet. 
as he breaks into a parable. Parables being stories that are designed to reveal spiritual truths to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And he begins in verse 28 by asking, what do you think? See, Jesus is about to charge the religious leaders with rebellion and hypocrisy for their refusal to properly respond to the call and ministry of John the Baptist. The call of the Lord through John the Baptist. The call to them to repent, and in the words of John in Luke chapter 3, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because, as John said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so to mark his shift from direct teaching into parable, Jesus begins his rebuke with the question, what do you think? And he says this, a man had two sons. And he went to the first and, and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward changed his mind and went. Now, in the parable, this first son represents the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus will reference in verse 31. Those who heard the law of God and at first disobeyed that law in spectacular fashion by running to the most grievous and wicked sins that you could imagine. In Israel, tax collecting and prostitution. But then afterwards, thought about it, changed their minds and turned to John, turned to Jesus and repented. But look at the son in the first, par- par- in the first bit. He answers his father in a gruff, impolite, and irritated manner, snapping back at his father's request, I will not. I don't want to go out into the fields. I know what awaits me out in the field, the hot sun, the back-breaking labor, and when I count up everything that working in the field entails, I'd rather stay where I am. I'd rather take it easy. I'd rather do what makes me feel good. I'd rather just live my life, get rich, sleep around, follow the path, the easy path that is paved by society. Forget all that religious stuff. I don't want anything to do with any of that. I'd rather sit here and take it easy. But after a while, he considered things a little bit more, and that same son ended up changing his mind changing his mind, he ended up repenting and responding positively to the request of his father. So Luke tells us that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in this parable, Jesus is describing this ministry of John. And while we do not know how many times he preached that same message to the crowds as he went... We do not know how many I will nots that John received when he called the people into the vineyard of the Lord, when he called people to repentance. We do know that eventually, according to Luke chapter 3, verse 12, tax collectors came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And John called on them, and everyone else to live, and he means to truly and wholeheartedly live in accordance with the will of God. 
You see, the tax collectors present to us the sorts of people that you and I might think they can never be saved. Either because they would just never want to be saved, or as the Pharisees assume, they're simply too sinful and too despicable to be saved. And yet, here they are responding to the call. And you and I need to realize there is no one too far away from the Lord that they are outside the reach of God's gospel. It's a beautiful picture, to be honest. Because if you're anything like me, I find it quite common to hear people say things when I talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. I hear people say things like, you know, if I ever entered into a church building, I'd probably burn up. Or, God would strike me with lightning if I ever tried to go to church because I've sinned so much. Now, usually they'll say it in some sort of lighthearted jest, right? But I can't help but wonder if they really think that God couldn't, that God wouldn't actually forgive them of their sin and adopt them into his family and give them eternal life if they would simply repent of their sins and believe in his name. It's truly a stain in many ways on our witness that we've allowed such an anti-gospel thought to take root even in the church. And even more, at times we have promoted it by acting very much the same as the Pharisees did to those that we consider sinners, that we consider tax collectors and prostitutes. The Pharisees positioned themselves against tax collectors and prostitutes. And in many ways, we position ourselves against those we think are just too sinful as well. We begin to see them as enemies. We begin to seek their destruction or owning them or defeating them or beating them rather than, as the apostle says, being for them the beautiful feet of those who bring to them the good news. See, Pharisees see people, and I've said this before, this is one of our statements, hopefully you've You've, it's soaked into your mind. Pharisees see people as obstacles to be overcome rather than souls that need to be saved. Rather than souls that are in peril of eternal damnation. Rather than souls that must hear and respond to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our text, do we see that if sinners on the level of tax collectors and prostitutes could hear and respond to John's call to repent, then you and I must never assume that in our own day there are sinners that cannot do the same. That are so far gone that they won't do the same. The miracle of the Lord is that anyone can hear and respond to the risen Lord's message. So you see, this son starts out with a refusal, but after thinking it over, he ends up obeying his father and going out into the field. And if you learn anything from this, if you have refused this morning the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are still breathing here this morning, taking in a breath, breathing out a breath, if your heart is beating, your brain is working, you can move your hands, move your legs, shake your head, whatever it is, you can still change your mind and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. You can turn to him and be saved this morning. The parable continues. As the man with two sons went out 
to the other son in verse 30 and said the same, the same being, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And this son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So this son tells the father exactly what the father wants to hear and even went so far as to use flowery honorifics in his answer. I go, sir. It's a polite yet phony and dishonest answer. It's a profession of submission and obedience without any actual submission and obedience. The parable reveals much the same thing that we learned in the fig tree, the visual parable of the fig tree in verses 18 to 22. The fig tree that Jesus approached that looked, that presented itself as though it had a whole bunch of figs and fruit given all of the leaves that we saw, that Jesus saw from afar and the, and the disciples saw from afar. But as they approached, this tree that seemed to be one that bore fruit upon closer inspection produced nothing but leaves. Useless leaves. This son, in like manner, promises to obey the father's ask, but ends up disobeying. He promised fruit, but produced only leaves. This son represents the response of the religious leaders to the ministry of John the Baptist in Israel. You see, as John called the people, called them to repentance, they just stood by and listened. And John specifically rebuked them, saying in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, these religious leaders, they watched from the sidelines. They quickly went out to see and assess the ministry of John. But when they heard him, they simply ignored him and refused his word to them. These religious leaders proved to be the types of people who will say all the right things. They can talk about righteousness. They can talk about obedience and worship and the rest. But as they do, their hearts are far from the very God that they presume or profess to serve. Now you see, the Lord is not looking for a people who turn His Word and His command into a mere set of external rituals. A mere external obedience so that we can look holy and we can look spiritual and we can talk righteously all the while remaining rebels at heart with, with hardened hearts. You see, the Lord throughout Scripture has always rebuked those who are satisfied in their spiritual life by some sort of external conformity to the rules. In the days of Uzziah, for example, the Lord sent the prophet Jeremiah to Israel, to Judah and Jerusalem with this message. And listen to this in Isaiah chapter 1. This is the Lord speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, did you hear that? The Lord himself is the one who commanded these very people to bring burnt offerings to him, to observe Sabbath, to celebrate appointed feasts. And yet here, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declares to Israel that he hates their practice of the very things that he has commanded them to do. Why is that? Because they are missing a vital component Yes, the Lord commands obedience to His will, but obedience to His will from one who loves and trusts and depends on Him in faith. Not one who obeys because he believes, he or she believes, that this practice of externals wins him the favor of God regardless of the state of their hearts before God. Those who think, you know what? It doesn't matter how I live so long as I go to church on Sunday. So long as I sit through the pastor's very long sermon. So long as I pat my brothers and sisters and church on the back and shake their hand and go through the motions of, hey, how are you doing? Fine. How are you doing? Fine. Good. Let's all go sit in our seats. Who take communion who volunteer a little bit and think, it's all good, I've done my duty, I've, uh, I've obeyed the Lord, now I can go out and tax collect and sleep around. Who think that because they do these things in church, while there is really no love in your heart for the Lord, that everything is okay with you, this parable is a direct rebuke of that mentality. It's no accident that the great commandment that we'll look at in a few weeks is located where it is in the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to look at, look, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to this, starting in verse 2. Fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
And flip to chapter 10 if you want. Verses 12 to 13. Again, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Did you notice the connection here? The connection between obedience to the Lord's command and love for the Lord as the impetus, as the foundation, as the motivating force for that obedience. The obedience that the Lord accepts is that which springs from a heart of faith and love and gratitude, not that which springs from a hardened heart that begrudgingly obeys as a matter of form, or from a heart that seeks to be self-righteous by by presenting themselves to others and even to God himself as pious or super-religious. That's what the religious leaders had done in Christ's day. And this is something we, you and I, must be on guard against every single minute of our lives. That we ourselves do not become like these Pharisees. That we do not become those who are simply able to talk about doctrine, those who are able to denounce the sins of our culture, those who are able to point out all the areas and all the ways in which everyone around us falls short, who pay lip service to God, but who never, as Jeremiah and Hosea say it, break up the fallow grounds of our own hearts. Always remember, just as an aside, always remember that you might see the external shortcomings of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You might see the failures of their in their life, the way they've responded and the way that they've done things in ways that you would not have done things. And it's easy to preside over them in such a pharisaical way. But listen, always remember what you don't see. You don't see their prayers of confession and penitence in the secret prayer closets of their own life. You don't see the tears that they cry in their own prayer life. You do not see the pain souls of those who are confessing their sins and calling out to God in mercy because they too know all too well their own shortcomings. If you're honest with yourself, you know all too well your own shortcomings, right? You and I must never forget that God deals with each and every one of us personally. That each one of us must be aware of the call of God to each of us individually. The call that he gives out to us to love him and to express that love by obeying him. Never become so caught up in external religious acts. Never get so caught up in rebuking and condemning other people and the culture that you live in that you set aside the Father's call for you to go into the fields and work. Do not become like these religious leaders who stood on the perimeter of the field talking about how others were working. But you, yourself, you as an individual, you, imagine me saying every single one of your names and my own, you love God. Turn to God in faith. 
Obey him out of a heart of love and gratitude to him. Now with the parable concluded, Jesus pressed on with this question in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Which of these two sons did the will of the father? Which obeyed and did what was right? The one who spoke rashly but reconsidered out of love for his father and then went to work in the vineyard? Or the son who said all the right things but who in essence proved that he simply lied to his father's face? Now the answer is so obvious, isn't it? So obvious that even the religious leaders who are blind at this point to what Jesus is actually telling them Answer it. If they had known where Jesus was headed here, they probably would have done the same thing as they did when Jesus asked them about John's ministry and said, we don't know. But they said here, the first. On the surface, the parable seems harmless enough. Two sons, one did what the father wanted, the other didn't. They had not yet grasped the deeper spiritual truth being declared by Jesus until verse 32 when the application comes to them from the lips of Jesus himself in the form of a rebuke, or in verse, when he says, next, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Now don't miss the shock of this statement. The religious leaders, the most externally moral men in all of Israel, the ones who avoided fornication, the ones who meticulously measured out their tithes, who fasted, who prayed with a strict regularity, the Pharisees and scribes who, as Jesus will say in Matthew 23, sit on Moses' seat as the teachers in Israel who declare the will of God to the people in Israel. These Pharisees are the types that any of us in this room might look at and say, wow, those are godly men. Do you see how moral they are? They must have it all together. Look how opposed to the sins of culture they are. Look at all the work they're doing. See how dedicated and devoted to God they are. Can't you just see it in their lives? I could never measure up to them. Look at them. How can anyone measure up to them? And yet, even with all of their external morality, Jesus will soon refer to them as blind fools, as hypocrites, as those who appear outwardly beautiful but inside are full of greed and full of indulgence. So while these religious leaders might look the part, they are the second son in the parable. And again, don't miss the jolt here. Don't miss the scandal of this statement. Because they are the second son, moral on the outside, but dead on the inside, Jesus said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom before them. Do not miss how scandalous that would have sounded in the ears of these moral Pharisees. The tax collectors. Those Almost everyone in Israel hated and despised. The tax collectors, those who made a life for themselves by theft and embezzlement and straight-up robbery. Those who got rich by stealing the hard-earned money of the poor. Those who indirectly stole bread from the mouths of children throughout the land of Israel by their extortion. And not only that, but these tax collectors 
whose work of gathering taxes from the Israelites for the Romans paid for the very army that kept the Jewish nations subject to Rome and its oppressive regime. The worst part is that collecting taxes from the Jewish populace was something that Rome gave to Jewish people, meaning that in order to collect taxes for Rome, a Jew had to turn their back on the nation's hope for freedom and liberty, and they, in essence, were considered by their countrymen treasonous. They were considered turncoats, worthless people, people of utter contempt, worth nothing more than to be spit on when you walked by them on the street. Jesus said, they will go into the kingdom before you. Because their lives had been so externally profane and sinful, and because they humbled themselves in repentance and turned to the Lord from the heart, these will enter the kingdom while the moral, religious leaders will remain on the outside. The humble, repentant tax collector will be showered with the blessings, the grace, and the mercy of the Lord while the respected, proud, unrepentant religious leader who lives a wonderfully moral life is excluded. That's unbelievable, isn't it? But Jesus didn't stop there. Along with the tax collectors, Jesus also told them that the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. The prostitutes. The sexually immoral. The women who made a career of selling sex for money. The women who slept with numerous men, as many as approached them for these fleshly indulgences. These women who transacted this business with men over and over and over again. And if you want to know how the, the Pharisees and religious leaders thought of such women, we can turn to Luke 7. There Luke describes the scene. A Pharisee asked Jesus to come and eat with him in the Pharisee's home. And during the dinner in Luke Chapter 7, a woman of the city. That's how Luke describes her. A woman of the city. It's his sensitive way of portraying this woman who is a prostitute. This woman of the city that Luke adds, who was a sinner. When this sinful woman of the city heard that Jesus was dining at this Pharisee's home, she brought a jar of expensive ointment to the dinner and she wept and she anointed his feet with that ointment, with that lotion. The picture is of a woman in despair shedding tears in grief as she thought about what her life had become. This is not what I thought my life was going to be like when I was a little girl playing in the backyard of my home. And rather than compassion for this woman who approaches Jesus in hopes that he might help her, the Pharisee who had invited him to dine said to himself in Luke chapter 7, verse 39, if this man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. John Bunyan wrote, so ignorant are all self-righteous men of the way of Christ with sinners. 
So ignorant are all self-righteous men of the way of Christ with sinners. You can see it in the Pharisee, right? If Jesus were a real holy man, serious about living a holy life, he would never allow such a woman as this near him, reasoned the Pharisee in his own heart. But listen, the Pharisee is wrong. And this woman, as sinful as she is, as immoral as she has been, even with all of the mistakes in her life, all of the sins in her life, all of the indiscretions of her life, all the years of secret, frequent, repeated liaisons with men from all walks of life, she approaches Jesus with all of it, all of the weight of her sin looming large in her mind. And she must have thought to herself as she approached Jesus, I have heard about this man. I have heard about his compassion that he expresses with sinners like me. I have heard about how different he is than the religious leaders who when they see me simply sneer at me and hurl insults at me and walk on the other side of the road when they see me. Oh, how I wish I could meet him. Oh, how I wish I could get into his presence. Perhaps, perhaps, maybe he could heal me. Perhaps he could address my situation. Perhaps he could ruse or remove my sorrowful burden. Perhaps he could connect me with the God that the religious leaders keep telling me does not want me, does not desire me, does not love people like me. And as this woman anoints Christ's feet and the Pharisee condemns her in his heart and judges Christ to be unfit as a holy man because he lets her touch him, Jesus looks at her, looks at everyone in the room, and says, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins have, are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a Savior. What a Lord this Jesus is who welcomed and who received and who forgave the repentant tax collectors and the prostitutes who turned to him in faith. And when Jesus used these two phrases together, tax collectors and prostitutes, he's using a phrase that in this day, when they were used together, referred to all that the respectable religious establishment considered vulgar and vile. In saying it this way, Jesus had just looked at the religious leaders and said to them, these proud, self-exalting, outwardly moral but inwardly spiritually dead and decaying religious leaders. He looks at them and he said, those that you consider to be the moral filth of society, those that you consider to be foul and obnoxious and offensive and obscene, those that no member of your religious establishment would ever associate with except to judge and to condemn and to hurl insults at, such as these, should they repent and humble themselves before the Lord, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. While those who think themselves so respectable to God without such humility and repentance will remain on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. Now there's two lessons I want you to see here. The rebuke to the externally moral but proud and the gracious blessing to the sinner who humbles themselves and turns to Jesus in faith. Now I know we've been re rehashing this over and over again, but we're going to do it now one more time. 
you and I will fall into one of these two camps. Every one of us here will fall into one of these two camps. Either you are like the Pharisee, the externally moral, moral religious leader who says all the right things, who fights for all the right causes, who thinks so highly of themselves and they're standing before God because of their moral external deeds, who rest secure in those deeds and at the same time condemn others because they don't measure up to your standards, judging, condemning, and evaluating others based on how well they measure up to you. This is the way of the Pharisee. This is the way of the religious leader. The warning for such religious types is this. Again, never get so caught up in your supposed morality, in looking down on others who don't measure up to your standard in hurling condemnations against the tax collectors and the prostitutes in the world who, have, who still at this point say, I will not, but could at any moment change their mind and enter into the field. Never forget your own need to humble yourself before God, to repent of your sin before God, to weep before Him and plead for His mercy to trust the Lord Jesus Christ because you are included in the assessment that the Apostle Paul levels against the entirety of the human race. And that is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Never get so overly concerned with everything that's going on around you that you forget that you have a soul. And your soul must be right with Jesus Christ. If you would inherit eternal life, if your life of obedient faith would not be one of external ritual, one of performing, of saying the right words as your heart remains far from the Lord, repent, turn to the Lord in faith, trust, humility, love. Humble yourself before Him. Cast yourself at His feet because the Lord Jesus loves to forgive sinners. Such a disposition actually proved devastating to the nation of Israel. Just look at their history. They went into exile because of this very thing. And unless you humble yourself, repent, and love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you too will face an even greater and an even more eternal devastation than what Israel did. So you might be like that Pharisee. And the call to you is repent and humble yourself before the Lord. Or you might be more like the tax collector and the prostitute. Now we can think about these two in two ways. You can be the sort of sinner, tax collector, and prostitute who hears the call of Christ to repent and to believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins, who counts up the cost of following Jesus and decides, I'd rather walk away in rejection than run to Him in faith. And if that's you, I have no hope to offer you this morning except rethink your response and be saved. Be like the first son in the parable. Change your mind and turn to the Lord. To both the Pharisees and the rebels, I've heard it said in many churches, and I've even seen it plastered on the front page of many churches, we are a place that is comfortable for you to visit. We want to be a place that is comfortable for you to visit. If you are a rebel, if you are a Pharisee here this morning, I want you to know that's not us. If you do not know Jesus, if you've rejected Jesus, if your heart is far from the Lord but you're putting on a good show, I am not concerned with your comfort here at this time of worship. 
In fact, it's the furthest thing from my mind. I want you to feel the weight of your decision to turn from Christ. I want you to know the eternal consequences of that decision as they loom large over your head right now. I want you agitated in your seat as the Holy Spirit does some work in your soul, convicting you about your sin and calling you to see the word of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that the word points out to you your eternal destiny should you remain in your state of rebellion. And your eternal destiny is this. There is going to come a day when Christ himself says to you, unless you repent and believe, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Is that what you want? If you are one of the tax collectors and prostitutes, in other words, if you are one of the sinners who's refused Christ, then please, for the sake of your eternal soul, trust in him, love him, look to him. But there is another type of tax collector and sinner I'd like to address this morning as well. The one who sits here and wonders if God could ever have mercy on someone like me. You see, so many of us look at the externally religious and moral people, those who seem to have their act together, complete with an impressive moral resume. And when you look at them, you say to yourself, how could I ever measure up to that? How could I live up to such a standard? If I compare myself with them, it's clear the Lord could never love or forgive me. But if you learn anything from this parable, learn this. Once again, the Lord loves to forgive humble, repentant sinners. You see, the Lord proved as much when he sent his one and only son that whoever, and hear that, whoever believes in him will not perish eternally but have eternal life. All who turn to Jesus Christ in faith Enter the kingdom of God. Enter into the sphere of His compassionate, gracious, and forgiving love. Even if you have been like the thieving, treasonous tax collector or the promiscuous, sexually immoral prostitute, the good news of the gospel is that there is hope for you. There is hope for all of us. We all need the grace of God. And the Lord loves to shower His children with never-ending ways of grace. And so to those of you who feel this morning like you are the very worst of sinners, the arms of the Lord are open wide to receive you, to embrace you, to press your head into His chest as He rests His cheek on the top of your head and tells you, I love you. John Bunyan, speaking on... Mark, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, where Jesus tells the disciples they must begin in Jerusalem. Begin their preaching ministry in Jerusalem. Now, why was Jesus so keen on their beginning their ministry in Jerusalem? I'm going to read a little bit of Bunyan here. Uh, if you're looking for a book, there are a couple of Puritans who are like medicine to the soul. They're not super doctrinal, but they just apply the wonders of God. John Bunyan, Richard Sibbs, if you want two names. This is the Jerusalem Sinner Saved. Fantastic. He said this, and I'll lightly abridge it or edit it here. The people with whom the apostles were now to deal, they were the murderers of our Lord. 
They were charged in general with his blood. So they had their various and particular acts of villainy and their guilt lying on their consciences. And so Peter goes and says to them, the very ones who called out, crucify him, the very ones who had a hand in the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter went to them and said, repent every one of you, be baptized every one of you in his name for the remission of sins, and you shall, every one of you, receive the Holy Spirit. Now one might object, but I was one of them that plotted to take away his life. Can I be saved by him? Peter replies, every one of you. Then another might say, but I was one of those who bore false witness against them. Is there grace for me? Peter says, for every one of you. Another objects, but I was one of the ones that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and desired that Barabbas the murderer might live rather than him. What will become of me? Peter said, I am here to preach repentance and remission of sins to every one of you. Another might say, but I was one that did spit in his face when he stood before his accusers. I was also one that mocked him when he was in anguish as he hung there bleeding on the tree. Is there room for me? For every one of you, says Peter. But I was one of them that when he was in the throes of despair gave him vinegar to drink. Why may not I respect the same anguish and guilt upon myself from Jesus. Peter says, Repent of these your wickedness, and there is remission of sins for every one of you. But I railed on him, I reviled him, I hated him, I rejoiced to see him mocked by others. Can there be hope for me? There is for every one of you. Repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And John Bunyan says, Oh, what a blessed every one of you is found here in this text. He goes on to say, Thus it was with the people concerned in the text. These were the worst of sinners, Jerusalem sinners, sinners of the biggest size, and therefore such as had the greatest need. So they must have mercy offered to them before it is offered anywhere in the world. And so Jesus says, begin in Jerusalem. Offer mercy first to the Jerusalem sinner. Who's a greater sinner than those who were a part of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul sensed the depths of his own sin but believed the word of the Lord that even someone like him who persecuted the church, who oversaw the death of Christians before his own conversion to Christ, think about it. I want you to think about this for a second. Why did Jesus come to earth in the first place? Did he come to earth so that the moral, the externally moral, might feel better about their external morality? No, the text tells us he came to seek and to save the lost. 
And when Peter preached that sermon to the Jerusalem sinner, the worst sinner, we read at the end of Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 souls were brought into the church that day. And who were those 3,000 souls? There were 3,000 Jerusalem sinners. 3,000 of the worst sinners in the history of mankind and Jesus welcomed them with open arms and and showered his grace upon them because he came to save sinners. He came to save the chief of sinners, the most awful of sinners, the most wretched of sinners. And if we are all honest with ourselves, every single one of us knows that at one and the same time, we are the most wretched of sinners. I know myself well enough to know I am a wretched sinner in need of Christ's grace. And if you're honest with yourself, you know the same thing. Not about me, but about you. And if, however, we know Christ, if we are known by Christ, even so, even though we are the most wretched, we are saved, we are forgiven, we are adopted into his family. What greater news is there than that? So in closing, the major focus of the parable has been on the disobedience of the religious leaders in Israel who refused to repent and turn to the Lord. But this same parable is applied and can be applied to our own lives. As the call goes out to you this morning, which of the two sons will you be? Will you be like the son who does the will of your father and goes out into the vineyard, meaning receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or will you be like the second son who simply says all the right things, does all the right moral, puts on a good moral show all the while your heart remains far from him? I pray that whatever your response that the Lord would be exalted, that he would be glorified, he would be magnified in all of it. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the, both the warning and the wonderful, gracious call that is exhibited or given to us in this text. And I pray that if there are rebels against you in this text or in this congregation this morning, that they are right now quite uncomfortable with what was just spoken I pray that your Holy Spirit would be doing work in their souls. I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause them to be born again, to regenerate them, to allow them to see the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who are downtrodden, who are bruised reeds, who are feeling the weight of their own sin and wondering how it is that they could be saved, I pray that this word that is found in your text would be a soothing balm to their souls a soothing medicine to their souls, water that fills this thirsty soul so that they leave here this morning encouraged. They leave here this morning more in love with you, the sinner that they realize is greater than they could have ever imagined as he has forgiven more sin than they could have ever imagined. May it all be to the praise of your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.